Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto. Today I'll be speaking with Christina K. Robinson, who is a writer, curator, and visual artist born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. She is the co-editor of Mixed Company, a collection of short fiction and visual narratives by women of color, and her writings appeared in Guernica, The Baffler, The Nation, and L.com, among many other outlets. She is also the new editor of Antenna's Room 220, and she's here to talk to us for a little bit. Hey, Christina, how's it going today? Pretty good, pretty good. Feeling cold, but energized. So you recently were named the editor of Antenna's Room 220. How, uh, how are you feeling about that? How's it going? Um, it's going pretty good. I'm pretty excited about it. I'm excited to try to amass a really good, diverse group of writers who are writing about all of the arts uh, disciplines that are happening in the city. So that's really what I'm focused on right now is trying to, you know, connect with and amass a group of writers who write about theater, who write about art, who write about writing, um, education, everything. So it's, I'm really excited about being able to do it. It's cool. No, I think that's yeah. cool. Yeah, no, it's really awesome. Yeah. I, I love that kind of interdisciplinary approach, you know, trying to get things happening on all these fronts and kind of connect them. Right, right. And it kind of uh, works with the type of writer and type of artist I want to be. I'm really into the interdisciplinary. I felt like discovering that word in some senses solved a lot of things that I used to look at as problems. Yeah which is which genre do you want to work in? Do you want to be a writer or a visual artist? And this concept of the interdisciplinary kind of, you know, solves those questions for us. And we don't have to draw such hard lines in between disciplines and genres. I like that. Yeah. I'm kind of similar. Um, as a person that's interested in a lot of different things, I have trouble managing my time in individual right. ones. Uh, how do you kind of work your way through without going crazy? Um, so, you know, first you go a little crazy <laughs> always because your brain is always very frenetic and overloaded with ideas and things you want to do. Um, I've gotten really, really focused just on the hand writing out my time. Like I literally have to allot myself time for each discipline. Mm during the day in a certain type of way. Like I will spend, you know, an hour on writing. I'm going to spend 30 minutes doing a post. I'm going to spend 45 doing this installation. And I really just try to move through it that way so that I just actually have it set up like a department store in a sense. Yeah. It's like I will be in this department for 30 minutes. I'll be in this <laughs> department for 30 minutes. And by the time you do it, you've seen the whole kind of store. So that's kind of how I've gotten into it, where I just really block out the time. And I'm very visual yeah. person. So I actually post them on my wall, like oh. in separate things. And then I, yeah. And that helps me not go as crazy. I love yeah. the tactile kind of nature. Yeah, I have to. And then I'll take one off the wall and then that's how I know that one is done. Yes. And it helps, it, it helps me at least feel like I'm, my brain is ordered. Yeah, I love yeah, that because it's so ordered. hard to find that because I, I I I finally found like useful like post-it notes, just like write yes. my list on a post-it note. And the only time I get in trouble is if I have too many things to do that don't fit on that post-it oh, note. Right, exactly. And it's like, well, this is just done. I can't do any of this. Yes. <laughs> and I have recently really started to utilize the Google Calendar. A lot of people laugh because they've been doing it and they're like, why haven't you been doing that? But yeah. I've really started to utilize that and let it t kind of tell me what to do, which is maybe not ideal. <laughs> 
to let your phone tell you what to do, but it's what I have right now. It's, it's easy. It's there. Yeah. You don't have to worry about Closest losing it. Closest thing to an assistant. You know, if yeah. you don't have one, it can be your little virtual assistant. Yeah. We all need a, a real assistant. Yes, a real one. No, cool, Christina. Um, well, kind of talking about Room 20 a little bit more, I know there are going to be some fun things happening a little bit um, later towards the end of November as well as going into December. And uh, what, what you got for us? Um, so for November... Actually, we're going to do a reading slash uh, screening on November 29th, and it will be kind of a uh, rehash of a talk I'm doing at Words and Music as well that's about altars and shrines and how they can interact with literature and um, creating a literary space, a community for people. Um, we'll also screen a video and short film by another artist. So that's on the 29th. And then for December, I'm um, not clear on the date yet, but I'll have it very soon. I'm trying to do a holiday uh, get-together okay. reading if you have ever written or contributed to Room 220 at any point in its existence. You would be welcome to come and read. So as a way to kind of reconnect and regather that literary community okay. that existed there. So that's what's coming up for November and December. I think that's awesome. Like this yeah. coming together during during the holidays. Holidays, yeah, it could yeah. be a cool thing for us to do. I yeah. like that. Um, your 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 panel for words and music, and that you're doing the event on the 29th. When this will actually air? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's really interesting. I, I've noticed that there is a you have a real focus on shrines and kind of ritual within your work and specifically in the visual arts and the exhibits that I've, I've seen you kind of present, uh, including one that you did recently, um, Temple of Color and Sound. Um, Could you talk about where that that focus kind of comes from, that interest? Um, So I grew up in New Orleans and altars and shrines are a real big part of the culture here. You know, we're a very Catholic city. Most of my family is Catholic, not all of them, but most of them. And altars are just a fixture in the Catholic Church and then in the home of people in New Orleans. And so growing up, everybody's house that I went in had an altar or had a shrine to a particular saint or particular aspect of the Virgin Mary a lot. Um, And so that's kind of the roots of it in my work. And then looking at how shrines function all over the world in various different religious systems and then seeing how people in America, particularly enslaved people used Catholicism and this practice to connect with their own indigenous spirituality that they couldn't necessarily practice openly. So this was something that occurred in both faiths, this act of shrine building or altar building. And so then they were able to kind of fool the people around them into thinking that they were building all of these altars and shrines to various Catholic deities, but all of these deities had a corollary in their spiritual system. Interesting. And so thinking about being a writer who comes from a traditionally marginalized community, I started thinking about how shrines can be ways to subvert, you know, the power structure. Yeah. Um, And so I did do this installation called Temple of Color and Sound, and it was a part of a show called The Rents Too Damn High, Mm -hmm. which ran for about 30 days. And that shrine was really thinking about kind of the effects of gentrification, displacement, and thinking about, well, what would happen if you were gentrified out of your temple? Mm -hmm. And so this temple and this shrine was set up under a tent, under the idea that it would take place outside and maybe as a gathering space or meeting place 
for the homeless mm. and other people who don't have, quote, somewhere to go be themselves. So Tempo, Color, and Sound came from that idea, and it's actually going to go in a show coming up in December in Miami uh, called Welcome to the Afro Future, which okay. is being curated by Gia Hamilton, who's oh, from New Orleans. Yeah. That's exciting. So that's going to be cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. That, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Is part of that spiritual as well? Is there a spiritual element for you? Are you a spiritual person? Sure. Um, I grew up, I would, I would say, at the crossroads of a lot of different uh, religious traditions, and that at, at an earlier point in life maybe gave me a little bit confusion, but I have understood it as interdisciplinary as well, yeah. too, right? That your spirituality can also be interdisciplinary and that isn't does not make it invalid. So I definitely am heavily influenced in my writing and art by indigenous spiritual systems, particularly Shata Nation and uh, Vodou uh, Ifa as it's practiced in the new world. Of course, it has its roots in Nigeria, Benin, and countries like that in West Africa. But kind of the version that's practiced in New Orleans yeah. is sort of an interdisciplinary mix of a lot of different traditions. Yeah. So if you look at the indigenous or cultural spirituality of black people in New Orleans, black Catholics even, um, it encompasses a lot of different pieces of a lot of of a lot of different traditions. So yeah, I'm interested in thinking about how interdisciplinary culture can create this art that uh, bends genre and kind of challenges genre okay. a little bit. Yeah. I think that's fascinating, actually. Mm-hmm. Really cool. Thank um, you. How did you first start writing? You know, earliest memory of writing, I feel like I was in like pre-K, yeah. like three or four and I wrote like a little poem and I brought it, brought it to my grandfather and he just was like, you wrote that? And I was like, yeah. And there was something really dramatic too about like, you know, the sound of like nature and death or something. And he was just like <laughs> looking at me like I was crazy. Um, but I just kind of always did it in a sense. I remember my grandmother had these children's encyclopedias and they were the poetry volume. And I remember I saw Christina Rossetti. Mm. And, of course, I was attracted to her because her name was Christina. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she's, which is kind of strange in a sense, but that's the first poet I remember reading because I saw her name. And I was like, her name is Christina. And so I started to read her. Interesting. Yeah, so she was kind of my gateway, which is real interesting to me when I think about it now. But she was my gateway into that. poetry. Yeah. Christina's can be poetry. Yeah, poets, so yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, like go with that. It said something. So I was like, oh, her name's Christina. No, um, I, I love that. What, what about kind of the, the visual arts? Were you always drawing or painting? or? Um. So I, uh, what's interesting about that is I always felt artistic and I drew and I painted, but... Growing up, I would say maybe, I don't know if this is everywhere, but growing up where I grew up, especially in the South, uh, you are told, like, if you are not a painter, then you're not a visual artist, or at least that's the impression I got. Mm. So I didn't consider what I was doing, the things I did in my house, like setting up these uh, shrines or setting up these installations. I didn't know for a very long time that it was art, right? Um, And then I kind of discovered this artist that I really fell in love with, a Korean artist called uh, Namjoon Pike. And he does all of these or did all of these audiovisual installations. And it, it just changed my way I regarded my work. I was like, oh, this is a real thing. Like, keep doing that or something. Yeah. And so... 
it kind of changed my view on what I was doing and that I could also connect them with my writing. Okay. Yeah, because I always felt like you had to kind of choose. Yeah. Are you going to pursue yourself or, uh, quote, brand yourself as a writer or as a visual artist? And now I'm much more comfortable saying, well, you're just an artist. Which one do you want me to do? Yeah. Yeah. Which is a more complicated idea and a harder one, too. Sure, to figure out how to, yeah, how to navigate it. Yeah. Yeah, but it kind of started, I would say, in high school, really. My dad's obsessed with electronics. Yeah. So he always had all the electronics, speakers, you know, receivers, just all kind of things like that, books about sound or waves or whatever. And so I was just always attracted to it visually. Yeah. Just the way it looks looks nice to me, the color, you know, yeah. stuff like that. So I kind of got into it in high school by just amassing the stuff stuff he had laying around okay. and doing something with it. Yeah. That, that's so interesting. You had mentioned that uh, before when we were talking, looking at all the blinking lights yeah. right here in the studio right yeah. now. That takes in the art of like curation, right? Of mm -hmm. like, you know, utilizing space and seeing how it affects people. Right. Um, what goes through your head when you're, you're starting a project and like trying to navigate how to position things? If it's a visual installation, yeah. I'm, I get usually I, I see a shape. Yeah. In my mind, I want it to be a certain shape, and I start trying to amass the things that will create that shape. Like for Temple of Color and Sound, I really saw something dome-shaped, and so I started trying to amass the objects that would create like sort of a dome shape and a stage in the middle. I just saw kind of this dome with a T in the middle. So that's kind of how it starts. It's just like a rough sketch in my mind, and I start trying to arrange the objects to suit that sketch. Also how I wanted to make people feel. Like what is the emotion I want you to have when you look at it? Yeah. Because the way things are arranged spatially can change the way they make you feel. The same set of objects arranged in different directions can feel aggressive, can feel welcoming, can feel soothing, can feel jarring. So that I think about, okay, well, what emotion do I want people to feel? Do I want them to feel confronted? Do I want them to feel welcomed? Uh, and then I kind of go from there. Okay. Yeah. Um, kind of thinking about those things in that abject space, you know, like where you're positioning things to set a certain tone or a mood uh, with your um, whoever's looking at it or are experiencing it. How has, you know, navigating that art kind of translated into your writing? Has that done anything like with how you think about tone in your writing or how you achieve certain effects? Oh, for sure. Uh, so something interesting about, Working in an area like installation art and then dealing with something that has a spiritual component, I'm always kind of trying to make sure I'm clear with people like this isn't a traditional shrine. Um, if this was a traditional religious shrine, there were things that would have to be here, things that can't be here, things like that. So I'm always trying to be cautious and respectful of the tradition that this comes out of. Yeah. And that has helped me. I feel be more ethical in my writing in whether that's fiction or nonfiction. Yeah. So kind of removing the idea that everything is fair game, which is I feel like what we're told in America in particular about writing, that everything is fair game. Yeah. Um, and that there are no ethical questions about writing in a sense. Yeah. Um, and it's caused me to be much more concerned with that in my own writing, which I don't see as a limitation. I actually feel like it's expanded and made me a better writer. Yeah. Yeah. It's made, I feel made me a better writer. 
taking those things into consideration. Yeah. I think that's important. I, I, one of the things I asked a lot of people about, like writing, um, you know, writing the unfamiliar, especially for 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 white writers, there's um, um, there's a tendency to feel like I am entitled to write about whatever I want to mm -hmm. do. Um, and I, I'm always interested in the people that are like, you know, I don't feel that way, even if I'm writing about this culture or this thing that I'm unfamiliar with. How do I approach it? How do I be sensitive to that? How do I know certain boundaries that I want to set for myself within mm -hmm. that? I think that's a really interesting conversation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, even in, in regard of things that I'm a part of. Yeah. I don't always necessarily feel it's my right to write about them. Yeah. I'm not necessarily the person to do it. Uh, they aren't necessarily asking or interested in the, quote, exposure that I'm given or that I'm giving it by writing about it. And so I try to think about that, like, what is the cause benefit here? Yeah. What's the artistic merit of what? That's the biggest question to me. And that's what I have has been my response sometimes in settings or scenarios, particularly like school, MFA, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, when people are insistent upon writing a thing and they're doing it badly, right? Yeah. So I'm like, okay, before we get in, even get into the politics of should you be writing about this character from this community, what's the artistic merit? of what you're doing. Yeah. If there's no artistic merit there, there's no reason to do it. You know, do something you're good at. Yeah. You know, and I thought that that's the most basic thing. Like, if you're not good at writing a character who's from South Asia, why are you doing it? Yeah. There's a thing that you're actually good at. Do that. Yeah. So I think, like, that's the most, that's the simplest way that I approach it in a certain type of way. Um... Now, that's not to say we don't challenge ourselves, yeah. right? Um, but it's just to say if challenging yourself comes at, like, an entire group of people's expense, it may not be the challenge to take up. It's yeah. probably a better one, you know? No, I, um, I So that. that's always what I'm always going for. Like, let's go for the thing that has the most artistic merit. Uh, that's the best thing that you as an artist or writer can do. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of how I approach it. I think that's interesting. Yeah. I think like putting the ethics at the forefront is really interesting because a lot of people kind of put that on the back end or like sure. after I've done this thing, yeah. right? Uh, let's let's think about this now. And I think it's important to kind of bring that forward because yeah. there are people that are hurt by representations and nobody wants to think about that. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah for uh -huh. sure. Well, cool. Um, you wrote a piece for The Nation a couple of years ago um, about uh, Cuba. Oh, yeah. Uh, which was fun. You actually got, you actually took a trip to Cuba. Yeah. Um, how did that come about and what was your experience like? Um, so it came about a friend and I, we wanted to go, yeah. right? And so we decided that we would. <laughs> um, and then you get a real crash course in ethics and things like that, um, being in that position. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we went. It actually happened to be the last year that Fidel Castro was alive. So uh, it was the last year of Castro's Cuba. Yeah. And so that was really interesting. Being in Havana, I felt, was the closest or closest uh, corollary to how people must feel in New Orleans when they're like, oh, I came to New Orleans and I never wanted to leave. Yeah. Or I came and I just and I left, but I think about it constantly. I feel that way about Havana. I think about it like every weekend. I'm like, man, I wish I could be there on Friday, Sunday, come back. Because um, this is an awesome place. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot that I think would surprise people on whichever side of the politics you fall on as it regards Cuba. Um, there are surprises 
on both sides, I feel. And um, but it was an intensely educational experience, not in the traditional sense of like education in a classroom, but just educational, <laughs> like yeah. learning so much in real time all the time. And the population is hyper educated. So I learned so much from these people who are very poor, cash poor, according to American standards, but extremely well educated. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really interesting juxtaposition, something random, but there are so many dogs everywhere in Cuba. Right. (laughs) And since there's not private property, quote unquote, the dogs aren't guard dogs. So the dogs are all nice. Oh. And I live, um, you know, in America, I live in mid-city, and so everybody's dog is always barking at you because everybody's dog is, protect, quote, protecting something. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of afraid of dogs. So there are photos of me in Cuba with, like, three German shepherds, you know, resting their arms on my shoulders, weenie dogs between your legs. Oh. <laughs> They're just really friendly. And the guy, you know, he was like, well, being a bad dog in Cuba is going to get you nowhere because they depend on us yeah. to take care of them. So they're all super sweet which is a random but not so random thing, I thought. It was cool to see these animals, like, get to actually socially exist Mm -hmm. the way they're intended to. So, like, if we were in Cuba right now and we were sitting outside, definitely a few dogs would just come post up. Yeah. Like, hey, what are y'all talking about? That's that's perfect. Yeah, it was cool. It was just cool. So that was just, like, one of those things I had no idea about until I got there. Yeah, that's a whole texture because, like, I think of, like, Cuba specifically for Americans as one of those places that you only get to think of in like types and like mm-hmm. stereotypes in particular For because sure. nobody's had experience there in the past yeah. 50 years you know outside of uh, people that that immigrated here are left mm-hmm. as refugees for sure uh, that, yeah. that's really kind of a really neat experience to be able to see that in, yeah in person. it was awesome um it's also intensely spiritual as well yeah. so seeing um the level to seriousness to which people took their religion and their spirituality that was really cool and that was from old people to little babies you know so that was really really experience cool um on a different note i know you are a um contributor and, and co-founder of mixed company is yes. that right um for for people that may not be familiar what is mixed company uh mixed company is a short uh anthology of writing and visual art all women of color uh who were all living in new orleans at the time that it was uh produced some people have moved um since a couple uh, but it is a collection of short fiction, visual art by a, visual, a Haitian artist named Soraya Jean-Louis, who does still live in New Orleans. Um, and in addition to the anthology, it is an ongoing project around open cultural programming in the city, accessible cultural programming in the city, non-institutionally affiliated yeah. for people Various members in the collective have institutional affiliations and sometimes are things you want to do that kind of fall outside of those, you know, parameters in a sense. And so it's just a venue to be able to do it. Uh, Eventually, I would like to do another edition of it. I visualized the first edition as a space for women of color and then just expanding it to be a place for dissent in general. Yeah. Just cultural, political, religious, whatever, just dissent. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we have a tradition of those types of magazines and newspapers in America, and that might be going away a little bit in some senses. So I'm interested in keeping that going, like that uh, idea of dissent and it appearing in print somewhere. Okay. Yeah. What about that idea appeals to you? Um, okay. I guess because growing up in the United States, you grow up in a country that has a really effective 
PR machine yeah. around the world in the sense of our pop culture, right? Being our number one uh, export. Or, export, yeah. yeah. And so our popular culture really has constructed people's ideas of what America is and what it isn't. And so from traveling to other parts of the world and speaking with people, it's really amazing to me that people sometimes aren't aware that people disagree yeah. in America, right? That the thing that's being exported culturally or politically, people believe this is what the everybody thinks and that there's not people who think differently. And so that idea of exposing the dissent within America is really important to me because it's exported as if everybody agrees with some of this stuff that lots of people don't agree with. Yeah, we're um, not a monolith. Yeah, we're yeah. not a monolith. Um, and so especially when you come from a diaspora, like black diaspora, you know, it's really important to me that uh, people around the world know that there's a tradition of dissent in the United States of America going back centuries. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that idea is just in, is important to me just because of the community that I come from that. that has been about historically about dissent and um, the structure. Um, growing up in New Orleans um, and kind of participating in the arts here, um, where do you see kind of modern art culture now versus when you first started kind of... Um, putting yourself into it and kind of like working in the community here that's happening? Because there's been a lot of changes. Yeah. There's a lot of changes. Yeah, it's interesting. So there are some really good things, some things that's not so good. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited about the interdisciplinary nature of a lot of the art that's happening in the city from yeah. various different communities. Uh, I feel there's a, a, a very avant-garde thing happening in New Orleans that I'm not... I've been thinking a lot about how to name it, but it's pretty obvious there's like something's going on here artistically there. And it's a traditionally been a place where people converged upon yeah. uh, and lots of artists congregated. So I really see that there's something happening for sure here across disciplines, race, gender. Now, how and who gets to be at the forefront yeah. or gets to be the voice of whatever's happening here? I think that is kind of where maybe concern more lies, right? Yeah. And so just doing the work I can do to try to help highlight people who are culture bearers, people who are at the forefront of a discipline and not the person who might be the most uh, moneyed or culturally supported you know, face of whatever's going on. Because there's always people who are doing the work and then there are people who are better able to do the work because of, you know, socioeconomics, things like that. So just trying to keep an accurate record of what's happening and help highlight, uh, you know, really good artists yeah. uh, from the city. But yeah, there's some things going in a really good direction and then there are things that worry me. So I'm just trying to do my part, right, yeah. in... Um, trying to make sure that what needs to happen happens, right? Particularly on the documentation and the archival. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I think like these type of interviews and things are important. I agree. I, yeah, that's that's what know? I hope because yeah. I, I like them. And yeah, I, I think, I think they are. They kind of catch us at a point that are um, trying to showcase a, a specific point in time. Yeah. I'm yeah. glad to be participating in that. Um, yeah. Sure. I, I, we are running over time, oh, but cool. I do, uh, I'm enjoying talking with you. If you don't Thank mind you. if we go a little bit longer. No, I don't yeah. mind. Okay. Mm -hmm. Who are some 
writers and artists in the city that you really love and you wish that everybody knew about? Uh, artists. So the artist who is screening their video at Antenna, they go by the performance name of Scarab Shabazz. Okay. But they're interdisciplinary artists, musician. They do visual art. They do like animation, video work. Um, and I'm I'm really impressed by their interdisciplinary skills. So I wanted to include their screening in this talk about altars and shrines because I feel like they're one of those people that are doing cool work that might be a little bit at the forefront of something. It's not necessarily uh, maybe what's culturally trendy at the moment, but I can definitely see that the other things may come behind it. Yeah. Uh, and so trying to just capture that moment, like, no, this is somebody doing something cool. Yeah. You may not recognize it, it may not be familiar, but I think it's cool. Um, so that's one artist, uh, writer, one of the women who appeared in Mixed Company. Um, she, her name is Ambada uh, Kazi Nance. She's from New Orleans. Uh, she's a Muslim American writer, and I love her her writing because it talks about an aspect of Muslim life that's not talked about a lot, even within the community, which is the life of Black American Muslims. Mm. Um, most of the Muslims in America are not Arab. Most of the Muslims in the world aren't Arab. So just the idea that she's speaking from that perspective is cool. She also grew up in New Orleans. And that Islam played a real big cultural role in the city. And that's a really kind of buried narrative mm. post-Katrina because so many things were dispersed and went away. But one of our most popular female rappers, Mia X, who was the first, uh, who you know, lady of No Limit. Her name is Mia X because of how popular this was in New Orleans. And she's also somebody I wish people knew more about her as a musician and her writing. She wrote a book called Things My Grandma Showed Me, Things My Grandma Told Me. But besides it being a cookbook memoir, it's a treasure of like linguistic uh, language in New Orleans. So those are three that are, uh, Mia X is really famous, but I still wish people knew more about her. Yeah. Um, Scarab Shabazz and then Ambada Kazi Nance. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Um, do you find yourself writing mostly in nonfiction now or do you try fiction at this point? Um, I have uh, written fiction. Yeah. I, for whatever reason, it's the only thing I've never sent out. Yeah, really? Which is crazy, which is because that's the thing I went to school and did. Oh, wow. And it's so crazy that I have written publicly in all the other genres, but not just fiction. not that one. Oh, wow. Except for Mixed Company. Ah. Yeah, Mixed Company is my only fiction story that's okay. out. But I am going to focus a little bit more on putting my fiction stories out. Um, yeah, again. But I took kind of like a break from it. Yeah. To go into like the nonfiction, the visual art. I felt like compelled. Yeah. But I feel it was for a reason because now I feel like I can complete this thing that I did in a much better way. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's cool. Like coming in the circle. Full, yeah. The yeah. Full circle of Real things. Full circle moment. Yeah. I like that. Um, well, to kind of to kind of wrap us up, um, what are you reading right now? And uh, what's a project that you're working on next that you're really excited about? So I am reading a lot about sound right now. Okay. I'm reading this thing, digital sound studies, reading this book that's just a manual about uh, <laughs> way RGB waves and how they convert to the color wave and stuff like that. I'm reading that, reading a book about Nanjun Pak because I'm uh, trying to get ready for this exhibit we're going to do in December. 
Um, so I'm reading a lot about sound right mm -hmm. now. I'm really interested in it. Yeah. Well, I think that's awesome. Well, Christina, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. That was writer, curator, and visual artist, as well as editor of Antenna's Room 220, Christina K. Robinson. And that's our show. You've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. And you can catch our show every Thursday at 3 p.m. as well as on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. All of our shows can be found online after they broadcast initially on our SoundCloud page, which is located at soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.